a wop, bop, a loo, bop, a wop, bam, boom. Yes. One of the most famous vocal intros to any song. Oh. And many argue the most important lyrics in rock and roll history right there. I, I, uh, I think I, I might agree. I definitely clipped my signal chain doing that, but it's, it's, it's okay. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure he did too when they recorded it in 1955, I believe. 1955. So we're going back, gosh, how many years now? A this lot. Be like, yeah. <laughs> 65, maybe? Uh, 75 years, I believe. We're going back to the great and late Little Richard. Whew. And we f- figured for this episode, we're not going to really talk any specific songs, although we'll kind of use a couple as examples, like the one we just referenced perfectly, I might add. I think oh, we yeah. just, uh, yeah. <laughs> Tutti Fruity. And I'll probably also talk a little bit about Long Tall Sally as well. So they both came out about the same time and represent Little Richard at the beginning of his career in some ways like the epitome of early rock and roll. <laughs> I I think Little Richard should be mentioned in the same breath. And I guess he kind of is, but mentioned in the same breath as Elvis and Buddy Holly and kind of like the forefathers of of rock and roll. Yes, and I mean in he was the uh, the influencer, especially Elvis. Oh, credits Little Richard a lot, like you know, like he uh, revered him, as did many, many, many others, as we'll probably talk about down the down the road here in this episode. Oh. But ha- shall we start off like we do every episode with a little toast to the roast? Toast to How's the roast. That sound? I think I think we should. Yeah. Here we go. A toast to the roast. A toast to the roast. A toast. To the rose, our toast. That's a million dollar song idea the right there, John. That was awful. <laughs> I'll have to redo that. I, I think it was pretty great. <laughs> so there's really not much uh, guitar stuff going to be playing, you know, on this episode. Gotcha. Um, very piano driven, but, you know, that's the best I can do. <laughs> I don't think anyone will fault you for it, Johnny Boy. All you, all you can do is uh, pick and grin, as you said in, in our last episode. <laughs> you so, do your so what do you got in your cup, my friend? Mm. I'm glad you asked. I have a Nicaraguan coffee that is it's a competition-level bean, which means it was expensive. But the beans are like, they're a lot bigger than say, a non-competition level bean. And I guess I've never joined a coffee roasting competition, but this coffee is darn delicious. That I know for sure. Nice. Sounds delicious. It is a I just medium have this roast. Nice. A medium roast? Yes. Right smack dab in the middle. Not too dark, not too light. Sometimes <laughs> a medium roast is just right. Another million dollar song idea. I suppose. Oh yeah. <laughs> so I have this same uh, same bag of 
light roast whole bean coffee from White Bison that I got a couple weeks ago that I'm just finishing up here. So you're probably, you're, you're probably pretty close to finishing that bag, huh? Yeah, I think I only had a, have a couple tablespoons left of the beans. So oh, no. The last cups. It's great as a br- breakfast coffee. What are you going to do once it runs out? What's that again? I so said, what are you going to do once it runs out? I already have backup beans. Got a, uh, made a trip to Trader Joe's like most uh, obnoxious Nashville hipsters do <laughs> these days and stayed in line for about 30 minutes to get in and got their uh, breakfast blend beans that's in, like in a big old, uh, like a tin. So okay. that will last you for a while. So I've never, I've never good. had Trader Joe's coffee. So you're, you'll have to report on its uh, deliciousness or lack thereof. It's very. Uh, they have a lot of good options. You know, obviously, you know Trader Joe's. They all have their you know like in-house brands. I wouldn't be surprised if you know their beans are coming from some other, you know, roasting company from somewhere. But uh, it's pretty reliable though. Okay. And I've only had a couple different uh, roasts that they sell, but I tend to like their breakfast blend. They sell a lot of dark roasts, which usually I don't prefer. I don't know why dark roasts are more popular in America than other countries, but we sure do, as a country, have a lot of dark roast coffee here. Yeah. it's, it's To me, it's like the same as... Uh, IPAs in the beer world, especially like craft beers and microbreweries, like everyone has an IPA or multiple IPAs and IPAs are everywhere. And after a while, you just kind of get a little tired of chewing your beer. (laughs) (laughs) Really, really heavy, heavy palates, I suppose. Yeah. I've never loved dark, Um, dark roasted coffee or IPAs. (laughs) I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't drink any beer. There you go. I'm a whiskey man. And John, so my wife's family scheduled a vacation like a year ago to go to the Outer Banks, right? And it's still ha- it's still it's still happening, <laughs> but we're expecting most of the places to be closed, so essentially we're all just going to get together and hang out in the house. And Word has come down that there is a hookup for liquor. Someone someone knows someone who owns a liquor store, and so I have requested a bottle of Blanton's. Nice. They said, you can order whatever you want, and we'll get it for you at a discount. And I said, I doubt you can get this, but you said whatever <laughs> I want. So... If I Would get it take you at your word. If I if I procure <laughs> the bottle of Blantons, I will certainly make sure I save you a glass for whenever I see you Aww. next. Isn't that sweet of you? We've <laughs> been trying to taste this whiskey for like probably over a year at this point. <laughs> it's hard to find. It's no. very hard to find. And and people and laugh at uh, you when you ask for it. I yeah they do like even if you try to ask about like do you have a waiting list perhaps or do you you know call and they say like oh no we don't do that we just you know and then you know give you a little like look with the eyes and a half nod or you know touching of the nose 
And you're like, oh, I, I gotcha. Mm-hmm. Like, you're like, oh, so you save it for your friends. I got, That's fine, um, I guess. So hopefully. A decent, a decent inexpensive substitute, since I believe it comes from the same distillery, is Buffalo Trace. Ah, uh, Buffalo. See, the Buffalo Trace Distillery, they actually make quite a few really good yeah. whiskeys. They make one of my favorites called Colonel E. H. Taylor. Yeah, yeah. I think I've had that once before. You have. We were in. We were we were at that convention center in Bowling Green, and there's like those few little downtown area shops and bars and kind of places you know like about a block away from it mm-hmm. and yeah it we, had a nice little downtown area i think i think i bought a flight of of colonel e.h taylor where it had like three or four of the whiskeys <laughs> and so or, or maybe i just bought you a glass i don't i can't remember or maybe you bought me a glass <laughs> <laughs> that must uh mean you enjoyed it if you can't remember it <laughs> it's good stuff i if you if yeah. you find a bottle Pick it up. It should be about fifty bucks. Yeah. If it's more than fifty bucks, you're getting ripped off. So shall we talk a little, a little Richard? I think we should. I think we should. And yeah. and truthfully, I don't know as much about Little Richard as I probably should. With him being, you know, kind of the one of the fathers of, of rock and roll. The fa- you know the architect, the originator, the innovator. You know, um, even himself. There's a quote saying that of. Well, if Elvis is the king of rock and roll, then I'm the queen of rock and roll. Um, <laughs> any and all titles Richard. you could uh, bestow upon him, he's uh, well-deserving. I think he was actually in the first class of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, if I'm not mistaken. You are correct, yeah. In their first group of inductees in 1986. Wow. Deservingly so. So as probably many people probably found out over this past week when, you know, the sad news of his death came is that, you know, little Richard, officially known as, you know, Richard Wayne Pinneman, born in Macon, Georgia, back in 1932. Have you ever been to Macon, Georgia, Johnny Boy? I can't, I don't think I have, because I'm pretty sure we haven't had any gigs there, have we? No, no, it, Macon is a, it, it's a place, and especially in 1932, it was probably horrible. <laughs> yeah, I was reading up his, you know, background and some of his biography, and yeah, it definitely sounded like a very, you know, a poor area to yep. grow up in, you know, probably very difficult. And, I mean, gosh, like, going through his biography and his early life and the beginnings of when he started to sing and his career like there's a lot of almost like little branches that you know like oh, this happened and then you know such and such heard about him and they recommended for this and then this and then he kind of gave up and moved back to bacon and you know worked as like a dishwasher for a little while um so we're not going to spend this episode you know going over you know year by year is uh <laughs> his life history like that would be a little daunting <laughs> for such <laughs> and an in episode. 1946 at the age of 14 little richard started singing in the church choir <laughs> yeah i mean there you go 
probably before that too. Much before that, yeah. I was just making yeah. a joke. <laughs> so he just passed away here on May 9th, the year 2020, mm-hmm. at the age of 87. And with you and I, you know, we're both living here in Nashville. You knew where he was staying at for a while here in Nashville. Have you heard the stories? I have not heard the stories, actually. So for many years, I've heard at least two different hotels. He, Whether it was like the entire floor or like one of their top suites, like he stayed at the Lowe's Hotel on West End here in Nashville and uh, in downtown, right downtown in the district, you know, the Honky Tonk District, there's a Hilton Hotel. Uh And for um, many years, he stayed on the top floor of that Hilton. Like he just lived there. That so sounds was, expensive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he's been a Nashville native, or at least, you know, resident for a while. And, uh, right. I guess when he passed away, he was in Tullahoma, Tennessee, which I don't I, I don't know how far away from Nashville that is. I'd have to look on the map. I'm, yeah, I've never heard of that city, but yeah. I imagine he must have had family it's, there or something. Yeah, I imagine. Oh my gosh, he... Uh, 64 had... miles from Nashville. Okay, so it's not too far away. Yeah. No. So this episode, we're going to talk a little bit about his uh, you know, inspiration to others, like how he really kind of was one of those first big crossover pop hits that... You know, you just wasn't playing for black audiences back in the day. Like, immediately became uh, popular within, you know, white audiences. And during this time in the mid-50s, you know, there's a lot of segregation going on in the country still. Mm-hmm. And as I mentioned uh, just briefly, like, his early years, like, he started, you know, as he said, singing in church choir. I believe his father was a minister who also sold bootleg moonshine. <laughs> <laughs> and owned a nightclub was as well. A character, <laughs> certainly. Yeah, um, I'm sorry. Maybe not a minister. I think it was a. His father was a church deacon, and a brick mason. And his mother was also uh, a member, of like the, a Baptist church. So you know, pretty religious family. I believe he was one of twelve children born, which is you know that's a big family. Big family. Yeah. So singing in the church, like the early gospel, like that's definitely a big influence on him. And then he was uh, inspired by, you know, some of the gospel performers of that time, like such as like Brother Joe May or Sister Rosetta Tharp, uh, Mahalia Jackson, that's a big name, Marion Williams. And so those kind of influenced him with his like singing and, you know, background. And then he started just kind of, bounce from group to group, like different singers, different bands, like within the minstrel circuits in the almost like vaudeville acts that were still going on at the time, especially in the South here. You know, like that was still a big thing even up into the 50s and early 60s. So Little Richard, he's like, he was starting to gain some early performance experience and he was starting to be inspired by a lot of those like fellow singers and artists like within those circuits uh one name of note that richard was inspired by was a guy named billy wright who i had never heard of before 
but he was like an early, like American, like jump blues singer, as you would call it. Actually born in the, oh, I don't know when he was born. That might have been some, uh, might have been born back in 1918 or so. Wow. <laughs> it's funny. Uh, Wikipedia has Billy Wright's birth date as either 1918 or 1928 or 1932. <laughs> Well, I mean, a, a lot of folks were were just born in their their homes back then, so yeah, be, it would be hard that, to kind of know like a fourteen sure. year uh, difference. Of, uh, yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. It couldn't have been nineteen thirty two because that would put him at the same age as Little Richard, and like he was kind of someone who like influenced Little Richard right. in his style, his look, his singing style. He said, um, if you just pull up a picture of Billy Wright and he has that kind of pompadour hairdo and like the, the pencil stash, you know, once mustache that little Richard would then go on to emulate among other things. And you could totally see the, uh, the influence there. He, he wore that mustache all the way till, till his death, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. This is totally little Richard. Look at, yeah. <laughs> if you're listening, look up Billy Wright, and you will see certainly where he got his influence from. Little Richard, that mm-hmm. is, and born in Atlanta, so so it's similar area. You know, again, like a lot of those uh, South musicians were relying on those, as I said, like those minstrel acts or or so, like the vaudeville, like the small uh, little honky tonks mm-hmm. to play at. And uh, the other big influence on Little Richard, especially as it relates to the piano, we can't understate the importance of Fats Domino, one of the great kind of early uh, piano players and influencers as well. Fats Domino. Another guy I've never really listened to. A great name. (laughs) uh, Yeah, I mean, that that sounds like uh, an old school hockey nickname. Yeah, it does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like that. Was he a solo artist, Fats Domino? Yeah, and he would be within like his own like kind of like blues bands, like early blues bands, or like I think maybe even some maybe big bands as well, or like orchestras as they would almost call them. Yeah, he <laughs> sold sixty five million records. Yeah, he was a big name. Also a big influence on like the Beatles as well. Like any sort of a. Um, piano player who would have been growing up into the 50s like was definitely influenced by Fats Domino. Fats, I'm going to write that down so I can listen to a couple of his songs. So we can like, you know, as we said, there's tons of information and stories written about Little Richard and we'll kind of jump to like the beginning of his like solo career like in the mid 50s. So as he was, like, jumping from, like, band to band, you know, as, like, just almost like a hired hand within different groups, he eventually kind of became um, tired of what was going on. Nothing had, he had really had any big success yet. So I mentioned before, like, he moved back to Macon, Georgia, and worked as a dishwasher, if I'm not mistaken. And it was during this time as he was, you know, working to just earn money, he, uh, is th- this is when he wrote his 
most well-known songs. It's credited as he wrote Tutti Frutti during this time, Long Tall Sally as well. And those would go on to be as first couple like big hits that immediately just um, blew up. And as he said, like crossed all, you know, audiences and markets, you know, wasn't just within like a regional success. It just blew up across the nation. Yeah, which is even harder back then than it is today. It's still very difficult to do today, but to, yeah. with with segregation and all that kind of stuff working against you. I mean, the odds yeah. were, were stacked against him for sure. And, you know, you, you turn on, you know, Tutti Frutti and immediately, like, it's something that you've n- never would have heard before, like, especially back then. Like those like made up nonsensical syllables, like what is going on? And then it just, you know, takes you for a ride for the next two and a half minutes or so. Um, it definitely caught the ears of America's youth, as he said. And yeah. And the interesting thing about Tutti Frutti is it was just something that he had in his head. Like there's multiple stories. Of course, there's other stories about like the original lyrics to to Tutti Frutti and how they were kind of uh, were edited down to be a little safer and not nearly as a, you know, openly like kind of homosexual in a sense, like, you know, the whole, you know, there's uh, stories of what, you know, Tutti Frutti Frutti really meant back then, Uh but he changed them and, you know, cleaned them up, but he, you know, the wop bop, a loop bop, he just thought they were just kind of fun nonsensical you know words that he would just like sing to himself like he didn't think it would ever be a song of anything just like oh just like i'd sing that to myself all the time and then you know at some point i believe it was uh when he started to work with a producer who ended up being a a co-writer on on some of those songs um oh where's the guy's name uh blackman was his name if i'm not mistaken It'll come to. Uh, I'll find it here in a second. He's like, that, man, that's going to be. A, that's a song, you know. <laughs> Turn that into a song. I feel like a lot of songs happen that way, where they have like an exercise or just something they kind of play around with for themselves, and and then someone else hears it and they're like, we should make that into a song. Kind of, you know, like famously, Thunderstruck was kind of just like an exercise Angus Young would do to warm up. Yep. And uh, I was going to say, um, "Sweet Child of Mine." Sweet Child kind of, of a Mine, similar thing yep. for Stash or for Stash Slash. You know, the famously "Yesterday" by Paul McCartney. Initially, it was just scrambled eggs because he couldn't think of the lyrics. He just had the melody in his head, <laughs> <laughs> and that just kind of you know marinated in his you know head for a while. So, <laughs> so yeah, Tutti Frutti was just that thing that he had in his head that he sang, sang and eventually. You know, probably singing while he was working as a dishwasher at the Greyhound bus station in Macon, Georgia. And um, so you record that. And we, we talk a little bit about like Tutti Frutti and Long Tall Sally. It just that era, that mid 50s, that very early beginnings of what would become known as rock and roll. Mm-hmm. And I would say one of the biggest characteristics is this almost 
conflicting almost like rhythms that like fight against each other, but in a good way. Like back then, you know, there weren't rock drummers as we may have now, like, or, you know, you know, country drummers or, you know, hip hop drummers. Like back then, if you're a drummer, you were literally basically playing one style and that was jazz. <laughs> you're playing swing music. You know, that was what most drum set drummers, that's how they played. So any of those early bands, you know, singers who had, you know, started getting into that early rock and roll sound, the drummers would swing a lot. Swing on the ride cymbal, but sometimes the piano or the guitar player, sometimes both, they wouldn't swing their rhythms. They would just play it straight. So you'd have this kind of a greasy sort of like vibe feel like rhythmically with this like straight eighth notes one and two and three and four and versus the swing eighth notes one a two a three a four a one a two a three a four so you have both of those going together at the same time and that clash that shouldn't work it kind of does and that's one of the distinctive like i think almost a subconscious draws that brings the listener in to those early rock and roll records it's just that infectious sort of groove that almost feels like it could fall apart at any moment <laughs> and especially you know little richard like very like energetic and raw and like just going for it like it has that sort of like you're on like a roller coaster in a sense and you're like you're not sure if it's going to stay on the tracks yeah but it does <laughs> and like I think a little bit of that is kind of like just the energy that he would bring into his songs, especially his, his performances there. Yeah. And he picked up a lot of those like early, you know, the beginnings of understanding like how to perform with a crowd and like how to read a crowd, like in those early years when he was playing those different circuits, like the vaudeville circuits. And so like he like picked up little performance characteristics and routines like how to dress even as well like you pick up like like oh can i you know, cake in his face and makeup you know the hairdo like eventually like the the clothing as well like all that kind of came into went into the performance and you know you can you can hear that in the music too and i think it, it would be uh it would be good of us to mention a little bit about his backing band, at least in the beginnings, like early mid fifties up until like the early sixties. Um, he had a band called the Upsetters, <laughs> <laughs> and they would be his his backing band, and it involved uh, musicians. I love all they all have like little nicknames: Wilbert Lee Diamond Smith on saxophone. Mm -hmm. Nathaniel Buster Douglas on guitar, who I could barely find any information about Buster Douglas on guitar. Why does, that, a, why does that name sound so familiar? There is a boxer by that same name okay, as well. And that's mostly the information I find on when I was searching for Buster Douglas. But you'd have a Charles Chuck Connor on drums and Osley Basie Robinson on the bass. Uh, I did come across one short little story that before he recorded Tutti Frutti and um, when he was still 
trying to do his own thing for a while he didn't even have a bass guitarist on the road so he just have the drummer hit the bass drum just you know just louder just like just slam on that bass drum to have that you know bottom oomph going on <laughs> <laughs> that's one way to do it yeah Especially so back then band. when they hardly had any amplification or sound reinforcement. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah, there's not much oomph going on in those uh, <laughs> venues back in the day. It was like just basically however loud the drummer could play and how, <laughs> how loud you can bang on the keys. <laughs> so if you had a nickname, if we were to give you a little little Richard-style backing band nickname, what do you think it would be? <laughs> we need to come up with like an equation like you know take take your first pet name along with you know your favorite color or something like that <laughs> hmm. wait actually if, if we did that i think mine would be lucky blue lucky my first john pet. lucky blue cardoni yeah that'd be my first pet name and favorite color <laughs> how about how about yours <laughs> um well, I guess I guess it would have to be uh, Kevin Waldo Green. Waldo Green, I like that. Yeah, that's me. Call one me of Waldo. our uh, one of our bass uh, guitarists who we go on the road with uh, refers to me as Captain sometimes. I don't know how that started, but Captain. <laughs> yeah, he always calls me Captain. Huh. <laughs> We'll have to we'll have to get so, to the bottom of that and report back at a later date. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, the upsetters, they would go on to back Otis Redding in in the sixties okay. as well. Cause around the early to mid sixties, um if I'm not mistaken, I think he stopped uh, little Richard stopped touring for a little while. And that's when he um became a born again Christian. And this where like a lot of interesting just like biographical information is found and like, you know, we can get into it a little bit. We won't have to talk about it that much. Like, like he was, you know, in some ways like an openly gay man, which during that, even back then, you know, very taboo and, you know, something that you kept on the down low. But then he became born again Christian and like there's quotes of him later on in his life saying that, you know, that was a life of of sin and, you know, homosexuality is a, a sin and an evil. Um, so it's got it, it's it's interesting. There's a lot of like conflicting things within his uh his life, it seems like. Um but it was around that time I think when he stopped that his upsetters, the band, like they moved on to tour with Otis Redding. <laughs> and they have always been uh held in high regard even james brown has credited them as putting the first funk in rock and roll that's quite yeah james brown was notoriously hard to hard to please (laughs) yeah oh yeah there's whenever we do a james brown song there's lots of stories about him like (laughs) finding his band members for missed notes and everything (laughs) 25 yeah (laughs) Which is funny because even on some of these early records, like there's still some like trumpet splats here or there. Right, right. You're like, oh man, poor trumpet player just just gave back his entire yeah, days. That's, that would be the hardest gig. Yeah. 
I think at one point he even fired his band and hired another band when his band asked for a raise. So, anyway, we won't get too far down in the weeds with with James Brown, but another (laughs) very interesting character. Yeah, yeah, he's great. So, obviously, as many people have been stating over this past week, there's so many, like, current musicians and even, you know, musicians who have already passed that, like, you almost can't have them without having Little Richard first. Like, whether it's, you know, even current artists today, like Bruno Mars, like, look at Bruno Mars, even just aesthetically, his look, you know, like, you can trace that immediately back to Little Richard. I mean, uh, you know, Prince, David Bowie, even many of those British rockers, you know, the Rolling Stones and the Beatles. Beatles for sure. Like, I mean, Paul McCartney essentially tried to sing like Little Richard. Like, that was what he was attempting. To You know, even down to the little, like, high, almost like falsetto oohs. Like, mm-hmm. you know, listen to I saw her standing there all those oohs directly taken you know, influenced by Little Richard you know his ooh like that was his saying so that's what the Beatles did too like hey we love that let's do that too but I don't think Little Richard ever sued them over it like uh, I believe Chuck no, Berry yeah. did <laughs> <laughs> and of course you know famously um, when um, Richard started to go back on the road into the probably the early mid 60s I can't trying to remember if it was 62 or 63 I think it was right before the Beatles came over to America they opened for him and of course there's that you know famous photo of the Beatles meeting little Richard backstage because by that point I mean you know they were about six seven or so years after Tutti Frutti had came out after Long Tall Sally, so he made his mark, you know, in pop music, and they were huge fans, even to the point when they tried to sign him to their label that they had back in the day, Apple Records. <laughs> Not to be confused with Apple, the technology company. Yeah. <laughs> I say, I use the word technology loosely here, don't mind you. <laughs> yes, yeah. It's more uh, of a lifestyle brand at this point. <laughs> yeah, no no kidding. So there's some fun things about his tunes back then. In their, you know, in their simplicity, you know, sometimes like both lyrically, like the kind of storytelling aspect in his songs that you get just enough information that you can kind of almost like make up your own little world or story to it, like it doesn't give you anything explicitly you know it's you know especially back then a lot of those early rock and roll lyrics you know typically you're you know singing about a girl named sue or daisy and you know like they drive you crazy you know those like just quick little like one-liners almost Mm -hmm. Mm. kind of john uh, prine-esque where he would it yeah probably simpler in a sense i would say like more in the Kind of like the the blues tradition of it's almost more about how you're singing it than what you're singing about. Right, like the lyrics almost don't even matter. Yeah, I mean, especially a wop bop a loop bop. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, if we look at a Tutti Frutti, Tutti Frutti is kind of an interesting one in which 
it's a basic 12-bar blues in the key of F. So 12-bar blues, it's a repeated song form that a lot of these songs from this era like just follow that song form and just wrote lyrically within it. And there's not many lyrics to Tutti Frutti at all. <laughs> I mean, you start off with the whole chorus, Tutti Frutti, oh Rudy, Tutti Frutti, oh Rudy, and just that's the chorus. And then you get to the verse, I got a girl named Sue, she knows just what to do. I got a girl named Sue, she knows just what to do. Again, that repetition, very much part of like the, mm-hmm. that early blues tradition which you, you know, have one line, and then you repeat that line. And then uh, she rocks to the east, she rocks to the west. She's the girl that I love best. Uh, but the interesting about, thing about this is, during this verse, it does not follow the 12-bar blues. It does the... Let me grab my guitar. Ah, uh, yes, yeah, still, still on the one mic system as of now for... Yes. Our uh, quarantine recordings here. Which I don't know. I guess once you get your new house built, you'll be so far away that we might have to continue to record the show this way. But <laughs> Yeah, we're going to be like in literally different counties. <laughs> um, but I don't know what... I don't know what phase would be appropriate for us to record again live and in person i guess i guess we could do it as early as phase two would make sense perhaps yeah and for those uh listening to like phase two what's he talking about so our whole uh city of nashville has this phase plan four different phases i believe yeah basically we're in phase one right now and that stores are open but only at half capacity type of thing yep it's all right. Could be worse. Yeah. So so we got two, yeah, tutti frutti. So I was saying, like the interesting thing is, you know, a twelve-bar blues. You usually know you're in a twelve-bar blues, especially when you get to the last third of the progression. You have your one chord, then it goes to the four chord, back to the one. And then very basic, and this is the structure that he follows, like Long Tall Sally as well. The five chord, back to the four, one. But in his verses, got I got a girl named Sue, she knows just what to do. Go to the four, got a girl named Sue, she knows just what to do. And then instead of going to the five, you just stay on the one and you go, she rocks to the east, she rocks to the rest, She's a girl that I love best, tutti frutti. And then it just repeats, then it starts again with the chorus. Mm-hmm. So you're not following that 12-bar blues during the verse. Um, which then brings me to Pat Boone's version of tutti frutti. Have you heard Pat Boone before, my friend? I have <laughs> not ever listened to Pat Boone. You heard the name, though, I'm sure. I have heard the name. So Pat Boone was known for during this time like just to put it bluntly he made like the safe versions of like you know black artist songs for the white audience 
So within the same year, not even, I don't even think it was many months apart, after Tutti Frutti came out, Pat Boone came out with his own version of Tutti Frutti. And that was, you know, the industry standard. And Pat Boone was like, you know, a big selling name back then. Like he would just, he'd record songs of like those, you know, African-American blue songs, or early rock and roll songs. Um, so it's kind of funny to listen to Pat Boone's version. And it's not to say that he wasn't a good singer, but I mean, he's not howling and, you know, <laughs> growling like little Richard is at all. <laughs> I imagine yeah. not. No. I So earlier I was sending John some videos and I sent him this video of, it was a, you know, they used to do these, these shows where you, they would lip sync the song and there'd be like a crowd Everyone, there. Yeah. Everyone's kind of miming with their instruments. Uh, and so it's, uh, a show with little Richard featuring long, tall Sally and Tutti Frutti from a film. I guess it wasn't a TV show. I guess it was a film called don't knock the, the rock. And <laughs> it is, it is one of the strange, like most strange vibes you, you will ever like look at, like looking back at it now is just so like, it's like alien looking. Almost, yeah. Because you can like, tell it was super segregated and everything, and it was just—it's just so weird. It, yeah, it's uh, it's important not to overlook like the, you know, the impact that he had, um, within like connecting with you know kind of quote unquote white America that time. Like, and he was like he was a performer. Like even in that video, like I watched it. Like you know, he's, I think he's like playing behind his head back at one point like you know putting his foot up on the piano and oh, the yeah. saxophonist goes up and stands on top of the piano for the sax solo <laughs> and of course this is still like they're miming to the recording they're not playing live so it's, right and you have all the audience just like sitting in their chairs not even dancing just sitting in their chairs either clapping or like patting their legs <laughs> yeah like swaying back and forth it's so weird yeah. it's so weird it's so weird yeah you should it almost kind of reminded me of some of our um like corporate gigs we would do sometimes when like everyone's staying seated because they don't want to like dance in front of their boss or something. Right, yeah, and there's no don't alcohol. Let loose. <laughs> yeah. So we're all, you know, jumping around on stage and everyone else is just <laughs> sitting on their hands. Yeah, if you if you get, if you haven't seen it, it's it's actually worth the watch just because it's just I think it's really eye-opening. So it's Little Richard, Long Tall Sally, Tutti Fruity. And then it's from the film Don't Knock the Rock, and you can find it on YouTube. So go go watch that clip and, and tell me that it's not the strangest thing you've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, that was definitely a sign of the times back then. Certainly. So sorry I interrupted. Um, interrupted you no, no, that, that was, I'm glad you brought that one up because that was that was a, a fun video to watch. <laughs> <laughs> and eye opening to like you know, maybe people back then. Like, you're thinking that everything was kind of, oh, even like early rock and roll, like it wasn't really that crazy. But for the time, like, and you can even tell, like, he's probably like holding back. Like, if it was an actual performance, like, he'd probably even be going crazier. Yeah. 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 But even then, I mean, you know, we're talking about a time in which the cameras would show Elvis Presley from the waist up because they didn't want to show his hips moving, you know, the gyrations. And they, they gyrated too hard, John. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> you 
So like Tutti Frutti, enormous hit right away. And then not soon after that, they release Long Tall Sally as well, which has a little bit more of a story to it, talking about like, you know, an Aunt Mary and an Uncle John. And, uh, you know, it's, again, kind of like the funny sort of, you don't know if like, is any of this somewhat autobiographical? Like, was there really maybe a an Aunt Mary, perhaps that your Uncle John, he was referring to? Um, who's to say? Like, you no, know, he kind of said in the past, like, oh, there's some, this girl who, you know, was like a, a friend of the family and she was just tall and ugly with just two teeth and cock died. And, you know, maybe <laughs> that's what, you know, long, tall Sally's referring to. Who knows? Um, but that one follows more of a standard 12 bar blues, also in the key of F. <laughs> like, you know, the, the secret sauce is for him is like, you know, you just write to the 12 bar blues. Like, that's your your palette that you, that's your foundation i mean the songs um, are are such that you could almost you could play one and then the other without without pausing and if you weren't paying attention you might not even realize he had switched songs yeah i know i mean very like similar tempos at least you know for a lot of them like in other songs like you would have definitely you know at least a different feel perhaps um talking about the whole like that rhythmic conflict that was kind of built in in the early rock and roll style. Like some of his songs would actually be more of a swing, like like a standard 12-8 type signature swing. Um, Long Tall Sally, so that, as I said, like more standard 12-bar blues. And it starts, like again, like the simplicity of like, You know, those hits on the chords. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like, once you have that, like, you know, you'd hear that all over the place, you know, like the Beatles would do that. Beatles recorded a version of Long Tall Sally, like in their uh, early days. You know, like, that was a big influence them, influence on them as well. Man, these, um, the early rock and roll songs, they just feel, they make you feel good when you listen to them. They do, yeah. It what as you said, like we could try to dissect like what it is about those that make you feel good. Is it perhaps just like for some generations, it's the nostalgia of like you heard them when you're a little kid, you know, like maybe singing in music class, like even I mean, like Tutti Frutti is something like you know kids would have learned, when, like literally like little kids. Like I think there's some TV shows back in the day that would sing it, like children shows. Um, I'm pretty sure we sang that in music class when I was in elementary school. Hmm. Uh, so perhaps it's some of that. Perhaps it's some of that, it's just that that feel, as we said. Like it's that sort of like, I mean, it's the opposite of quantized music these days. Like you have, you know, drummers swinging their eighth notes, guitar players playing them straight, pianos maybe in between a little bit. And so <laughs> you have everything kind of like churning, making this new feel that really wasn't existing yet you know from a rhythmic standpoint you could have it that you could have that whole just the the rawness of the kind of like that going for it vocal performance that he would do yeah he he certainly sends it and he he could sing like that well into his his old age i mean there's some videos of him performing 
at other like rock and roll hall of fame like ceremonies in like 95 and probably some other ones but like he's he's still rocking and rolling even in his you know 60s or or uh, 70s which is pretty awesome which i have a a a story to share with you at the end here (laughs) so uh, remind me not to you know end this without telling you the story okay um yeah so a couple like other like just small look little tidbits uh, apparently long tall sally was originally referred to as just the thing that was the uh the song for a while or song title for a while and uh he did i mentioned like a producer who was also like a co-writer at least he got writing credits as well um the guy's name was bumps blackwell that was his name and that's who uh kind of helped produce and recorded some of those f- first records of little richard huh and he also got some writing credit which that'd be uh not too uncommon some, back then yeah true maybe maybe not all deserved but pretty common yeah and i'm not sure like how much he actually you know put into the songwriting process or if it's just you know who knows so um talking about that that just that good feeling that you get when you hear some of these records like from a recording standpoint from like the sound perspective like how would you uh describe it or like think about like what makes that sound was it just the sound of musicians in the same room being recorded yeah i say you (laughs) i i think if you're trying to capture that vibe today i think it truly needs to be kind of live and like the musicians definitely have to be having a good time i and i mean like maybe that's not true <laughs> maybe the musicians could be having a horrible time but yeah who knows to me to me like to do it right i don't think you can do this in one take i think you can do an approximation of it but there's something about like the drums bleeding into the vocal mic and you know the guitar bleeding into the the bass mic and nothing is di'd cuz it's you know 1955 that kind of i don't know at all it, it, like it's a huge pain in the the rear end to kind of like handle like the mixing and all that with all the leakage but it definitely adds something to the recording whether or not that's something you want is dependent on the project but i would recommend anyone trying to get that sound you know try to do as many things live and in the same room and kind of as a performance as you can because like you know you can kind of emulate the sound of tape pretty accurately you can you can emulate the sound of you know distorting recording consoles and preamps and whatnot but you can't really emulate musicians feeding off each other you know, mm-hmm. so that's so you what, think it has uh, just a lot to do with that. The simple fact that you know, out of necessity, they're just recording all at the same time, running through that two and a half minute song. Yeah, well, and they just you know didn't really have the the track count to do it any other way. So, I mean, a lot of times you would record it with only like you know a couple mics you have a couple mics for the entire band so the lead singer would get one 
and then you know later on maybe you give one to the bass or you give one to like there was like a featured instrument or what have you but yeah i mean it's it was really i mean in a in a certain kind of way it's really kind of cool that it was all kind of about the performance and the song because you couldn't you couldn't get technical recording with it you know it's just a couple mics that's all you yeah. can do so like it had to be about the performance it had to be about about the room and the song and all those other things and I, you know you can debate this until the cows come home but a lot of times today those those things kind of take a back seat to kind of building the song from the ground up or the you know building the performance as a whole and whatnot like it's not as important to get a really, really great performance because you can do 12 other takes and you can have a great performance on each line that you can slice together before the days of multi-track and stuff. So, I mean, max, they had four tracks. That's max. And they probably only had a stereo track. So, Mm -hmm. and a lot of times you would record you know, directly to uh, a shellac disc, and then that would be used to, you know, print the as your master to to go in and make copies of it. So I don't know. Tape was still relatively new. You know, it was only at that point it was less than ten years old from when we found it over in Germany. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah. I don't. So to answer your question, it, I think it has a lot to do with the performance and the and musicians kind of all feeding off each other and kind of thriving in that environment as opposed to kind of creating the track. Not to say that you can't get something close by just doing it, you know, track by track. Cause I mean, I'm sure you could, you could, but you could definitely uh, emulate that sort of. I don't think, I don't think sound. it would make you feel good the way, the way that Little Richard makes you feel good. And again, that's like totally like subjective and not like you can't, it's not quantifiable. So, you know, you take it or leave it. Would you say uh, some of these early recordings be a good example of recording or like a bad example of recordings? Well, for their time. Yeah. So when I say like they're bad recordings or stuff, I'm always using like our modern recordings as a benchmark. So like no matter how much you love a recording from 1955, you, you, you could never say that the recording quality was better than what we can do now. Cause that is quantifiable. I mean, you can, yeah. you can prove that, you know, we have much lower distortion and we have much more dynamic range and all these, all these things that go into making a recording. But for the time, uh, yeah, I would say the recordings are, are pretty decent. I don't know. You know, that's a good question and one I might have to think about a little bit more. If I was <laughs> to pick, like, the best example of a recording from, say, like, the 1950s, what would it be? Now, you might even need to subdivide decades because the difference between 1970 and 1975, you know, recordings done in each respective half of the of the decade are going to be vastly different from the technical leaps that were being made so so yeah i, I mean i yeah, guess i'm kind of rambling you. at this point but it's, <laughs> no uh, you're, you're good you're good 
I was thinking we should note that, and this is kind of remar remarkable, like those early singles of his, like Long Tall Sally and Tutti Frutti. So they are recorded, or at least um, I'm looking at Long Tall Sally here for as in a specific example. It was recorded in February, early February of 1956, released in March of 1956. So, I mean, they were putting these things out quick. It was like there was not much you know, dead time between, you know, recording and putting it out to the public, which is, uh, I think, kind of remarkable. Yeah, well, I mean, it is remarkable thinking about it now, but at the same time, it's maybe not as remarkable because, like, there wasn't much to do. <laughs> if, that, if I'm not trying, I'm not, again, I'm not, yeah, try I'm not well, trying no, to be I negative. Not much like post production being done on the song or exactly like you get the song and then it's basically like we have to make copies of this thing that we mm -hmm. captured and then once you make the copies you're done. Yeah, it you know it, sometimes it can be easy to overlook that back then. I mean, it was already an industry all about just making as much money as possible in as little time as possible, using spending as little money as possible. If he felt like he had a hit, it's like, all right, put the tape, done, send it out, you know, to get produced. And right, let's go make our ten million the, bucks real quick. Yeah, out to the stations. Yeah, and that's how you'd have like those quick, like alternate versions, like by Pat Boone, as we mentioned. Like they would put, oh, this charts, you know, this song's charting. All right, let's do our own version of it and mess up the form. <laughs> as <I> said. <laughs> Uh, or at least play a different form, I should say. Well, it's, I think you it's can... not it's not messing it up if all the bands play the same, you know, changes. I guess that's I guess that's true, but I I would I mean from someone who appreciates the original version, if you heard the a version in a totally different form, you'd be like, "What is this?" <laughs> <laughs> but that's the way it was done back then, so Yeah, yeah. Oh right. So you were gonna tell us a story. I think that might be I think that might be all we have on, on Little Richard for now. Yeah. So my one it's almost like a uh, six degrees of Kevin Bacon. <laughs> the closest link I can put myself to the Beatles, where you know, probably would be my favorite band in the world. You know, big influence. Well you only think it that because you're conditioned to think that. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, I that's it. That's an inside joke. We won't get. We won't. Yeah. We won't get into it. I was conditioned by so, my dad to think that some some of you listening by... know know what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so I uh, an old band that I was in. We called ourselves Public Display of Funk, PDF for short. PDF. And this was early two thousands. I think even before like PDF as a file was like as prevalently known um or at least you know we thought just like it was a playoff of the phrase pda public display of affection mm -hmm. so so our band we were like a funk horn band we had four horn players we even had a, a dj here and off uh turntablist as he preferred um and a, a singer for, you know for a while so in 2004, I think fall of 2004, we got to open for Little Richard at Milliken University, which is a small liberal arts 
College in Decatur, Illinois, kind of smack dab in the middle of the state. What was Little so Richard where, doing there? Good question. <laughs> every every year, the college would have like a big concert, or you know, you know, one year. I mean, it's <laughs> doesn't sound as good these days, but you know, one year they had Bill Cosby come. You know, like that was their big one year like event that they you know by put a lot of money to you know book a performer so this this year it was little richard and since we had an in i went to milliken you know that was my alma mater graduated just a couple months earlier in 2004 a couple of our other friends you know buddies in the band they also went to milliken so we had you know several of us were milliken alumni and another friend of ours i named clay i believe he was like working at the university at this point within the uh, I can't remember what they call it, like the student activities department or like kind of like a, you know, a lot of people don't realize that a lot of schools or universities and colleges, they have like a little s- small department that's basically they organize all like student events throughout the school year. Like they book, they book people like there's whole uh, organization called NACA, mm-hmm. um, the North American Collegiate Association. But basically, it's an organization that, you know, books performances at colleges, essentially. So that's uh, what brought Little Richard there. That was our, like, big concert of that year. So we had an in, and they asked, you know what? We need an opener for Little Richard. Can you guys do it? We'll pay you 500 bucks. We're like, yes. Yes, we can. <laughs> <laughs> so we, uh, we book it. Yeah, we're going to open for Little Richard. Like, this is a cool thing. And already our, you know, some of our parents were like, you know who also opened for Little Richard? We're the Beatles back in like 62 or 63. Like, you guys are just like the Beatles now. Like, yeah, sure. Just like the Beatles. Like, yeah, yeah, that that all tracks. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and one sad note, I guess not sad, sad, but kind of, I guess, disappointing for our friend, our bass player, he actually couldn't make it. He actually couldn't do this date. I think he was out of town for the whole weekend or so, if I'm not mistaken. So he brought another friend of ours, um, Dan, filled in for bass. So, And I had to like ask him, like, I have in the back of my head that we had you fill in on bass for some reason. He's like, yep. Like, I think, uh, I think Eric was out skiing or something or whatever it was. So anyway, let's cut short. And it just goes goes to show like the difference between the mindset back then. So I would have been like twenty two, I guess, twenty-three. Like I'm not even thinking about what I'm wearing. Like we're kind of like making sure like sound check goes well because we you know we have like nine people in our band and making sure we know our set list and like, okay, we're gonna do this song, this song, this song. We only have about thirty minutes time, you know, so making sure all the kind of logistical things of the performance are ready to go and i go out there i think i might even be in like shorts and like a bright yellow t-shirt like i don't even i'm not even conscious of what i'm wearing like <laughs> if the, if there are any pictures of it back then it would be hilarious um so anyway we do our thing we you know at memory serves we played a good show and you know so we go off stage and you know get a sit back and like watch little Richard perform. And at this point, like, so this is 2004. Um, what's that put on? He would have been like 62, maybe 
early 60s, I guess, for him. So he had two drummers, two bass players, a horn section. And I can kind of tell the trumpet player seemed to be perhaps maybe the band leader. Um, I think only one guitarist, though, if I'm not mistaken. A couple background singers. And then a secondary piano player. But guess what? The piano player was off stage. <laughs> oh, yeah. And also keyboards as well. And of course, we had like the, the grand out for him to sit on. I can't remember if there were actual like microphones out on his piano. I'm pretty sure there probably were, but we just thought it was kind of like, oh, there's a second guy backstage behind the curtain also playing piano. Hmm. Hard to play piano when you're putting one leg up on the top yeah. of the piano. <laughs> well, I don't think he was doing that at this point, but I mean, he definitely had his his outfit and and he was working the crowd and it was hilarious and awesome at the same time because after literally every single song that ended hit the last chord you know you're like and then he would step up from the piano take a step forward bow as if it was like the last song and then they you know break into another song and the last song He'd step off, like, bow in front of the piano again. Like, he bowed after every single song. It was hilarious. Well. And awesome. <laughs> so did you did you get to meet Little Richard? Yes. After his set, we were told by some security guys, like, hey, Little Richard, you know, you, you can meet him backstage now. You know, this, so this is after the, his show. Um, they did stipulate no cameras. Of course, 2004, we didn't even have, like, really cameras in our phones yet. Yeah, it didn't no even matter. Like, or if you did, it was an awful, like, pixelated camera. So, um, you know, but there's, like, so no cameras. So we don't have any photographic evidence or documentation that this actually happened. But some of us, we got backstage. We got him, made, meet him. We shook his hand. And, um, and you could, I mean, you could see, like, the, like, half inch of makeup on his face you know that was you know he's all like kind of dolled up in a sense and he was saying thank you very much you guys sounded great you know, he had a nice like very soft-spoken voice very pleasant i mean there's no reason he had to do this i mean as you know in the industry like most opening acts you hardly ever even meet your even if you're on tour with a artist like a headliner mm-hmm. he may not even come in contact with them all that often but um he said like yeah it sounded great you know he shook our hands and then he pulls out out of his back pocket a wad of hundred dollar bills and he counts through them one two three four five and like here you go like he paid us directly our opening you know uh <laughs> he paid you directly that wow yeah it was insane and i guess that makes sense like back then like you know of course, there's stories of everyone from Chuck Berry to Aretha Franklin, to, you know, especially predominantly kind of within like the African-American artist circles. Like they became very serious about their finances because they most likely got screwed. I was going to say they the got screwed over years. and over again, I'm sure. Yeah, they would get ripped off. So like he carried that even to his 60s. Like if this band's getting paid, they're being paid directly out of my pocket. And 
that's what we got it. Like it was like kind of just like a surreal moment of being paid five hundred dollars from Little Richard himself. And, and you probably you probably again. didn't even think about getting paid. Like you, that probably wasn't even on your mind. No, not at that point. We figured like we'd get like a check from the university somehow, or you know. <laughs> <laughs> and then his uh, bodyguard slash posse, whoever they were, like they also like. I think they shook our hands too and um, reminiscing about this with our drummer back in the day. He said like, yeah, we were shaking the one body, uh, the security guard's hand. And he like, he like literally like crushed my hand because they were like these two huge dudes. <laughs> um, and then they, you know, they gave us a little like pocket Bibles as well. And he's saying, God bless you. God bless you. And, you know, thank you very much. God sounding wonderful. Um, and that was it. It was maybe not even five minutes, but we got a, Got to meet Little Richard, shake his hand, get paid from Little Richard, which was pretty awesome. Wow, well, how surreal! <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was. Uh, it was great. <laughs> well, I think that might be be it for this week's episode. Our tribute to the great Little Richard. Yes, indeed. Rest in peace to him. If, Huge loss in the music world. Yeah, it's, huge voice. It's pretty sad. We're, I mean, I guess all those icons are kind of getting into their late '80s, early '90s, if if they're still around mm-hmm. to begin with. So, yeah. Um, from what I'm not sure what he, what was the cause of his death, but I, uh, I just kind of assumed it was just kind of natural causes. Yeah, I'm not actually sure. Now that you mention it, <laughs> but it doesn't really matter. He's he's gone, and that's what's important uh so yeah i wanted to give this tribute out to little richard and uh you know do do what we can to to remember the legend yeah so with that i've been john and i've been kevin if you'd like to reach out to us coffee and consoles at gmail.com please send us an email if you'd like we're also on instagram at coffee and consoles all right, yeah. I think that will do it, my friend. I think that will be it for this week. We'll we'll catch you next time. Yes, indeed. Long days and pleasant nights, my friend. Mm-hmm.